0: I loved him like a brother. He's, you know how some friends, they move from that friend category to they're like family. This is the way Tim is for me. He's like a brother, but the man is one of the most stubborn, prideful men I've ever met. Like, if you tell him he can't do something, he has to then do it just to prove you wrong or he'll die trying. So, before I knew all this about Tim, I was uh, studying philosophy. We lived in this house with this philosopher and hung out with all these artsy people and things like that. And I was doing a paper. On Kant's moral philosophy. I'm sure you are all thinking of that right now. This, if you don't know, is a man with a very large forehead named Immanuel Kant. If you don't know who he is, bless you, your life is probably better for not knowing that. But he is an 18th century Prussian philosopher who's famously brilliant, famously influential, and famously hard to understand. So, I'm sitting there wrestling with my friend. He's a philosophy professor, and we're talking about Kant's categorical imperative. And, and let me tell you, this conversation that I'm having right here, this is a conversation that it took me four years of studying just to be able to have the conversation. Like, this was a big deal for me. And Tim, I've never studied philosophy a day in my life. Scott walks in the room. it's like, well, that stuff's easy. Like, he acts like mastering Kant's moral philosophy is something easy. And so... I look at him like, what are you talking about, man? Like, this is, this is just to give you a context outside of philosophy, because I know a lot of you don't think of this world. This is like watching someone land a perfect triple Lutz in ice skating and saying, I could do that. No, you can't. No, you can't. And I just look at him. I say, you have no idea what you're saying. And he says to me, are you saying I can't master Kant? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, that's what I'm saying. Well, that's all I had to say. At that point, he would, he would master Kant's philosophy, or he would die trying. So I, smiling, like beaming ear to ear, I hand him the 668-page critique of pure reason. Let me give you one sentence of this book, and I quote, empirical universality is only an arbitrary extinction of validity from that which can be predicated of a position valid in most cases to that which is assertive of a proposition which holds good in all. Ha 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 ha! 668 pages of that! Bridget! You read that and you just wonder if Kant Con- actually wrote this for humans. Like, so, all this to say. Two things surprised me after this. I, I did not quite know and respect my friend Tim at that point. And the first thing that surprised me is by sheer stubborn willpower, Tim Scott read the entire book. Like it almost killed him, but he finished it. And I was like, that is the most brilliant, stupid thing I've ever seen. (laughs) And the second thing that took me by a bigger surprise was this. Tim finished the book and not only read it, but he understood most of it. And he seemed to believe most of it. And Kant had really messed with his mind. In fact, to be specific, Kant had really messed with his faith. And after this, Tim, my close friend, my Christian friend, my seminary roommate, went into a dark time where he questioned basically everything that he believed. This was Tim who was constantly praying, Tim who was constantly sharing his faith, Tim who loved Jesus deeply, and now he wasn't sure if any of it was real. And so I remember, like, later that week, we're having these conversations about Kant and theology and and what we can know about God, and it's one of those 2 a.m. conversations, and I'm pleading with him. I'm like, yeah, but. I'm challenging him and reminding him and talking about experiences we've had and talking about what the Bible says and historical proofs, and Tim, stop, man. Tim is a large, imposing man. And almost violently says, you don't get it, Anderson. We've been lied to. Like for years, preachers have been telling us that you can know God personally. And that's stupid. What does that even mean? Tell me, how can I know a God that I cannot see? How can I spend time with a God that does not exist in space and time? You know, there might be a God listening to our prayers. Or you might be praying to the ceiling. And you'll never know. Have you ever had someone that you love and respect just question everything they believe? Have you ever questioned everything you believe? I have. Both. And it's scary and disorienting. It's, um... I imagine it's like, have you ever felt an earthquake, like trying to walk in an earthquake when the ground itself shakes like you have nothing to grab hold of? There's nothing to keep you up there. You don't know what's up and what's down. And it's terrible. Tim and our large forehead man, Kant, they ask a good question, a question like many good questions. It feels very dangerous. It's a question that is uncomfortable because it is so personal and it is so important. And here's the question. If God exists in an unimaginable and indescribable spiritual dimension, whatever that means, if he is above and beyond us in every way, how can we ever know this God? How can we relate to someone we cannot see? How can we know that we aren't just praying to the ceiling? That's a good question. And that's an uncomfortable question. So last week we went here to Patmos, the island of Patmos. We had heard that, that there on Patmos, somewhere living in a cave, here's actually the traditional site, that there's this old ancient artifact of a man, the last of the twelve, this this disciple named John. And there around 90 something AD, we went and we sat by the fire and we heard John's Christmas story. And John's Christmas story is unlike any other Christmas story you've ever heard. He has something to say about Christmas that you're not going to hear in any shopping mall or any commercial that for John, he thinks that Christmas, the coming of the man named Jesus Christ, answers some of life's biggest questions. And this week, I just want to go back there. I want to, I want to be in that damp cave and I want to sit by the fire and I want to grab the cup and I want to watch this gnarly old man and I want to see John. Tell us the stories again. Let's just pick up where we left off. And remember last week, John started like this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And He was with God in the beginning. And through Him, all things were made. And without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness. But darkness has not understood it. And we sit there and we think, John, I I get it, kind of, sort of. I get it. I think God is unimaginable and indescribable. He is above and beyond anything you can grasp. He lives in a spiritual dimension, whatever that means. That his word, his self-expression, it causes, it creates all things. It's not part of creation. That all things in creation are in him and through him and by him and for him and unto him. That this word is with God and is God. But John, if God exists in an unimaginable and indescribable dimension above and beyond us, how could we ever know this God? And John says this. So there's a man who was sent from God and his name was John. He's not talking about himself here. He's like, John the Baptist, you ever heard of him? John, he was sent from God. Like he he knew things that no person could ever know. He had seen things that no one saw coming. Verse 7. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light that nobody else in the world could see what he saw, that no one else could see what God was going to do. But this guy named John said this. The true light that gives life to every man was coming into the world. The true light, this could be translated genuine or ultimate light. that The the light, the thing that allows us to see God and see everything else, see reality the way it is. The true light, the ultimate revelation of God, the ultimate way to know God. The bigger, Mount Sinai, God shows up in fire. Bigger than that. Elijah prays and fire comes down from heaven. Bigger than that. In the book of Daniel, a giant disembodied hand appears, writes on the wall, bigger than that. God is going to reveal himself, ultimately. And so we say, John, what are you talking about? What, What do you mean? What is this true light, the ultimate way that God reveals himself? And in verse 14, he says this. Well, the word became flesh. And that's what we need to talk about today. That's how you know God. The word, what we talked about last week, the order of the universe, the creative word of God that, that speaks and creates reality. The, the thing that we talked about last week that all the physicists of the universe are, are searching for, the, the ultimate theory, the grand unified theory of the universe, the word, the thing that connects all things, the life that is under and in and before the meaning of all things. That word became flesh. Now John's choice of words here, in just a few simple words, his choice of words is choice. So there's a Greek scholar named uh, Leon Morris. He's a brilliant guy. He writes this about John's selection of words here. He says, it's a strong, almost crude way of referring to human nature. The word became flesh. In fact, you probably know this in the uh, Latin, right? We would say incarnate into meat, into flesh. Incarnate. Now, we don't think of the word incarnate as foul or crude or anything like that, but we can still experience some of the semantic nuance in one of today's great linguistic centers, the Mexican restaurant. (laughs) So when Jenny and I lived in uh, Dallas, Texas, we lived in our neighborhood. We could just walk around the corner, and there were a couple of really good Mexican restaurants. And I know that's probably true of everyone who lives in Dallas, but for us, it meant we ate Mexican all the time and really... It did it to the glory of God. It was wonderful. Now, let me explain, you people are from Pennsylvania. When you walk into a Mexican restaurant, what's supposed to happen, what happens in Dallas, is they immediately place in front of you endless chips and salsa. You don't ask, you don't pay. Like, chips and salsa is an inalienable human right in Texas, okay? Right there, right to bear arms and eat chips and salsa. And that's the way it should be. Now, if you walk in the restaurant and you are having a particularly blah day— You know, one of those days that you just wish would be over. What you do, you don't just eat chips and salsa, although that's wonderful. No, you order queso. Now queso, if you don't know, is that melted cheese concoction with the spices and stuff. And it is addictive. The the properly salted chip with queso, it is Mexican comfort food. It is a cheesy, greasy, salty, spicy Mexican hug for your soul. All right? That's what queso is. Now... If life is really bad, you've gone below the queso level, like queso itself can't help you, what do you order? No, no, no. Today we need the queso con carne. Right? Queso con carne. For those of you who do not habla Espanol, let me explain. That's queso, melted yummy cheesiness with meat in it. It's like, I'm telling you, Nothing can make you feel better about yourself than sitting down with properly salted chips and eating an entire bucket of melted queso con carne. So this, my friends, is queso con carne. All right? And this, my friends, is God incarnate. Queso con carne? God incarnate. That's what Leon Morris is saying. It's almost crude. Like, it sounds like when you say, the word became flesh. What? Like, it sounds like you, you, the word, the exalted order and connection and meaning of all the universe just became something you'd order at a Mexican restaurant. Like, um, okay, I will have the the enchilada, uh, a burrito, and, and a side of God incarnate extra spicy. Like, it's crude. It's foul. Like, what, what's going on here? Greek philosophers called this phrase right here foolishness. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, think about it. Flesh. What What is flesh? It's like kidneys and livers and all that goopy stuff inside. Like that little dangly thing at the back of your throat and the gunk that gets in your eyes. Flesh! You really think that the exalted principle, the, the grand God of the universe became That? For them, it not only boggled the mind, it turned the stomach. The word became flesh. And for the Jews, it was all out offensive. I mean, it was terribly insulting. The I am. The very word of God that creates and sustains all things. The idea that it became flesh, a man. The word just cannot become flesh for a Jew. The word was God, and God is spirit. God is eternal. God is unchanging. God is omnipotent. God is infinite in his power, presence, knowledge, goodness, beauty, everything, his oneness. But flesh, flesh is material. Flesh is limited, and flesh is weak, and flesh dies, and flesh rots. Flesh has to be bathed, or it stinks. God became flesh. But John doesn't try to explain it. He can't. No one can. Instead, he tries to give us a picture. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally, the word that he used there is tabernacled. He takes a noun, the tabernacle, this place where God met with his people in ancient Israel. The place where God met this tent. Here's a recreation in the midst of his people, where God lived, where his holy presence lived among his people. He did that. He tabernacled in the midst of us. That's what God the Word did in Jesus Christ. And inside there, if you were to go in there, inside is in what they call in Hebrew the glorious light, the presence of God, the Shekinah in Hebrew, or Shekinah, some of us say, not to be confused with Shekinah who I found out is a reality star who spells her name exactly the same way. I was Googling for pictures, Shekinah glory, and I just found some terrible things. (laughs) Just be aware, not Shekinah, Shekinah. The Shekinah is the light and the glory that emanates from God's presence. That's what happens at the tabernacle. And when John says, that's what I saw in Jesus Christ, He tabernacled among us. God's light, his glory. Like, I can't explain it, but God himself is somehow there, emanated in him, through him. I don't know. But when I saw him, we've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So if you asked John, this old man, you're sitting by the fire, you say you saw God. What does that mean? How do you know God? He'd say, I met him. I met him. If you read his letter, the epistle of first John, he starts out like this. The one who was in the beginning, like I saw him and I touched him and I walked with him and we heard him and my eyes and my ears and everything about him. He was there. We walked with him for three years. I know him because I met him, and I can't deny what I saw. And I know that I know that I know. Okay. So fast forward, 2014 here, and we know, of course, I mean, we post-enlightenment, we're smart. Obviously, God cannot become flesh, right? That doesn't make any sense. Here's the question I have, just a hypothetical question. What if God did become flesh? What if the reason that John and all the other disciples and all of his pals were willing to die is because it was true? If John really did meet God incarnate, right? God in the flesh. What could he say to prove this to us? What could he show us or tell us to convince us that this really happened? So if God did take on flesh, become flesh, how would we know? So in 1884, this guy named Edwin Abbott Abbott, who was a British schoolmaster and theologian, Shakespearean scholar, wrote a little novel, helpful novel, called Flatland, a romance of many dimensions. I'm sure this is in your stack of, you know, mathematical satire. So he wrote this book, and this is actually really helpful. In his book, Edwin's going to ask us to imagine something. He's going to ask us to imagine a world that is entirely flat, appropriately named Flatland, right? And in Flatland, they have Length and width, but they have no height, no depth. Everything there is flat. In this land, we have a variety of flat people that inhabit this world. Circles, squares, rectangles, rhombuses, and the like. They have length and width, but no height or depth. They, They know about right and left, forward and back, but they have no concept of up and down. All they see, all they know, all that exists in their world is flat, two-dimensional. Okay? Now imagine that you are the artist of this world. You create a flat land. Here's a flat house and another flat house. And it was good. And then you create a whole flat neighborhood, and a flat dog, and a flat tree, and a flat whatever. And it was good. And then you create flat people. And it was very good. That's right. So these flat people, they live in their little flat land, and they seem to have happy little flat lives. Now, now as you came into church today, each one of you should have received your very own flat person. I would encourage you right now to to take it out, because we need to think about these flat people for just a second... I want you to pull out your flat person and I want you to consider for a moment the plight of this flat person, okay? I want you to consider their life. This person has height and width but has absolutely no depth. I mean, they're pitifully flat. This person sees everything that they see. They see it in a plane. So if you hold it up, this is what they see. They don't see they don't see what we see. They see a line. Everything just looks like a line or a dot to them. Everything. That's all they see. Now you, you being the creator, you being three-dimensional, you can see above and beyond. You can see the entire flatland at once. But they, poor things, they can just see what's immediately in front of them. They're so limited. So being a good creator, you take pity on these people for being flat. You want to deepen their understanding of existence. You want them to know you. You want them to know reality. You want them to know that the world is so much bigger than two dimensions. You want them to experience something greater. So, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do with these flat people that could possibly teach them that the world is bigger and greater than just these two dimensions? What are you going to do? So, I have an idea. Let's show them something fun. Let's just push a 3D object into their world, right? What is more fun than a balloon, right? So you take a balloon and you imagine you were to take this balloon and you were to push it. You could actually push it through their flat world so that they could stop and see it. What would they see as this balloon intersected their two-dimensional world? Well, they would see first a dot. That's weird. Where'd that come from? I don't know. And then suddenly it would grow. If you did a cross-section of the balloon that went through that plane, it would grow to a circle, and then a bigger circle, and then a bigger circle, until you finally hit the middle of the balloon, and then it would shrink to a smaller circle, smaller circle, dot, and disappear. Now imagine if they were sitting there, and one of them would say, I think, I feel, I sense that, that the artist, the great Paul in the sky... Is somehow trying to show us something wonderful, something unimaginable. What would they say? You say, you're crazy. It was a dot, a circle, a circle, a circle, a dot. Can you explain what happened? No, but it clearly wasn't that. You're just making up myths. Say, so, okay, this, this, this isn't working out. Here, Mr. Flatland here, though, he seems, to be, he seems to be responsive. He seems to feel that I'm speaking to him. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk directly to him. So we wait until he goes into his little flat house and he's all alone. And then we talk to him. We say, Mr. Flatland, and he's like, huh? Um, this is the creator. I wanted to tell you about myself. And so what does he experience? He's sitting there all alone in his room and suddenly a voice comes from within that says it's a creature from another dimension speaking to you. What happens if he goes out and then tells all of his friends, a being from another dimension just talked to me and told me. Well, everyone would say you're crazy. Okay, so that won't work. So you can't show them what a balloon looks like. You you can't talk to them directly. What if we took Mr. Flatland here and we pulled him up into this realm that he's never experienced before and we flew him around and said, look, Mr. Flatland, look. You can see inside of all the houses. You can see everything at once. In fact, you can see inside of your friends. And then suddenly we just dropped him back down. What would happen? All of the friends circle around and said, where did you come from? Said, I saw the most wonderful thing. It's a place called Up. And they're like, What is Up? (laughs) What is Up? And he would say, It's this place where you can see everything at once, and I could even see inside of you. And they'd be like, Uh oh. He just sounds crazy. Do you see the problem here? Even if I, as a 3D being, wanted to show them our world. Wanted to allow them to experience the depth and the reality. Wanted them to see what I see. There's no way, because of the dimensional problems here, there's no way for me to show them 3D. There's no way for me to tell them about it. See, here's the deal. What would happen if you were to come right up next to one of these people? You know, if they're really in tune with multidimensional reality, they might say something like, I feel the hand of Paul near me. Or I sense, or I feel, or I just believe, like there's a presence here. But can they show anything? Can they prove anything? No, they can't. In fact, if they prayed to a three-dimensional being, it'd feel very much like they're just praying to themselves. I can imagine a conversation between Mr. and Mrs. Flatland. They're sitting there on their porch saying, wow, this has been weird. And Mr. Flatland's like, I, I promise you, there just has to be an artist. Look at our flat, wonderful land. Like, there just has to be something bigger. And Mrs. Flatland's like, oh. It just it just is. It's just how things happen. There's nothing beyond our two dimensions. Drop it. And he's like, but what about the, the miraculous parting of the flat sea? And she's like, it's a myth. But, but, and she asks, if there is an artist, why has he not shown himself to us? To which Mr. Flatland would have to say, I don't know. See, it sure sounds like a bunch of myths. Sure sounds like there couldn't possibly be any reality beyond two dimensions to them. The attempt of the flatlanders who are stuck in two dimensions to know an artist who exists in a manner that they cannot grasp or imagine or hardly have words to explain. That's our problem. God exists outside of space and time. He's created a world that cannot hold him. We don't even have words to describe or imagine him. We are people bound in space and time Reflecting on evidences, these things that happen that we can't explain. But for us, we can't see the balloon. What do we see? We see a dot, a circle, a circle, 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 dot, and it's gone. So tell me, if God, who exists beyond space and time, were to reveal himself, were to become flesh, were to show us spiritual realities, what would it look like? What words would you use? Would you know? So in Ezekiel chapter, in the beginning of Ezekiel there, Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel, he has this experience. He sees spiritual realities, and he says, it's like this. It's like, um, it's like a lightning storm, and there are these creatures that are like animals, but like men, but like angels, but like they fly, but they're wheels inside of a wheel. But it's like, thanks? That was helpful. So Moses and, 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 and the leaders of Israel in and, and Exodus chapter 24, they, they sit down and they say, God joined us. We gazed upon God. God joined us for a meal. He said, you gazed upon God? Tell me about it. What did you see? And they said, well, it was like sapphire, except it was clear, except I I guess it was just under his feet, except does he have feet, except we really don't know. We say, Apostle Paul, you are logical, rational, a good communicator. Tell us. What's it like to experience spiritual realities? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he puts it this way. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God knows. Was caught up in Paradise? He heard inexpressible things. Things that a man is not permitted to tell. So Paul, what did you see? God knows. And what did it look like? It's inexpressible. So what can we say? When we talk about knowing God who is, that I am, who is above and beyond, who is spirit and truth, let me tell you, We are hopelessly, hopelessly, hopelessly stuck in our limited perspective of space and time and material stuff. God could be over and in and next to and through us and we would have no clue. It is impossible to know God unless he somehow breaks the barrier. Unless he somehow reaches to us. Unless, to use John's words, the true light, the ultimate revelation of God comes into the world. That's the first thing we need to know. The second thing we need to know is this. That even if God does break this barrier, even if he does enter into our world, a lot of people are going to be like, no, it was just a dot, a circle, 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 dot. No, God didn't speak to you. You're just hearing voices in your head. No, it's just weird how you teleported it across there. I don't know. There is no field of human study or knowledge equipped to explain, test, or even describe such an event. That if the word did become flesh, that is not something we can test in a scientific laboratory. You see, what John means by knowing God is not a matter of scientific knowledge. Science that is based in space and time simply can't measure, evaluate, or, or or observe something that's beyond space and time. So John, he can't explain all this stuff that's going on. It just looks like a flat land to him. But here's what John can say, that Jesus claimed to be God. And when he walked with them, Jesus could do crazy things, like he could command the wind and the waves, and they obeyed. Like when he wanted to get across the water, he could walk on the water. That when, when they didn't have enough loaves and fish, he could multiply them. That when someone touched him, he was instantly healed. That somehow it says that Jesus could actually see into the very hearts of people. That he saw a world that no one else could seem to see. That he truly believed that everything in this universe was actually subject to something that none of us could see. Something he called the kingdom of God. You know, it was almost like Jesus didn't fear or believe in any of the powers that we see. Racism and politics and hatred. And lust and greed and all those things, they seem to almost not affect him. In the face of torture, he loved. In the face of hatred, he forgave. In the face of death, he rose to new life. And before he sent it into a place that he called heaven, he promised someday that he was coming back. And John sees the evidence and he steps back and says, he claimed to be God and it sure looks like it to me. Now, does this prove that he is God in the flesh? Well, not if you're talking about mathematical proofs. Not if you're only happy with human proofs. Not if you're you're caught in this space and time. There, there's lots of evidence, but there's no proof. You can't prove this the way you prove a math theorem. At the end of the day, it's a matter of what we call faith. Mm. Isn't that hard? So here's the question. Does your world end with what you can see and know and understand and control? Or is there something more? Is there something crying out in you that there must be more in the universe? Or is what you see what you get? Is the universe an act of love and beauty? Or is it just stuff? Are we praying to the ceiling? Or is it possible That Jesus promised to never leave us and forsake us is true. Is Jesus here now? Is he speaking in our hearts? Is his spirit present in all who believe? Is he looking over the universe from one end to the other and yet looking at us? Is he calling us to live for a kingdom that this world has not seen? You see, John says it this way. John the Baptist testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. This is the one who was in the beginning. He's the word. The word has become flesh. It really did happen. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Literally, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. There was a revelation. You could see the character of God in the time of Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, if you want to know God, here's the deal. No one has ever seen God. No one. But God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. How can we know God, John? And the answer is simple. Jesus has made him known. So, just the other day, actually, I talked to Tim, my old roommate, and we were talking about stuff. It's interesting how our faith's changed and grown over the years because we've questioned more and more and more and our faith for both of us has become much, much simpler. Don't believe a lot of things. Just believe a few things very, very deeply. You know, both of us were talking about the fact that having gone to seminary and having read Kant, there are so many questions that we still don't understand. But the thing about knowing God, that one's pretty simple. If you can believe it. You want to know God? You just need to know Jesus. It's what the Bible says in biblical terms of repent and believe. That you need to stop living your life on your own. You need to stop pretending like this is all there is. You need to stop ignoring God's work in your life. You need to say, I'm sorry for the times I've sinned. The selfishness for living for this life. Living as though this is it. When you've said there's so much more. And you need to believe You need to believe that Jesus' life really is the life that brings life to all men. You need to believe that his death really does forgive your sins. You need to believe that his resurrection is for all who believe that it's coming. If you're breathing right now, and I hope you are, that offer is for you that your sins can be forgiven, that you can know the life, that you can know the meaning in the universe, that you can know the one who holds all the stars in his hands and yet is humble enough to take on flesh and dwell among us. That when you look at Jesus Christ, when you hear his words, when you see his life, he's not dead, but he's still here, closer than we can imagine. We're going to close with a video testimony of our friend, Michael Murray. And I just want you to take this moment to hear his story and hear the story that John has just told us. And if you have never made a decision to trust in Christ, to repent and believe, if you feel like God's hand is somehow moving you, if you do believe that there is something bigger here now, if you believe that God is with you carrying you along I would just encourage you to make a decision sooner rather than later let's pray Father we we just thank you Lord that you were loving enough to send your son for us God I, I just look at the humility it took for Jesus to take on flesh and become a man for our sake Lord that it is foolishness that that you would ever allow that to happen, Lord. It is mind-boggling and stomach-turning. God, I, I don't know that I'll ever understand what it means that Jesus took on flesh and became a man. And I don't know that I'll ever understand why he did that for me, how you could love us that much. And I don't know if I'll ever understand how I can be forgiven, Lord, but I pray that even if I don't understand that, that I'll cling to it, that we'll believe it. That belief will form us as a people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.